Welcome to Pip Talk, a podcast featuring interviews with rebels, visionaries, mystics, outliers, change makers, and people I find interesting. I am your host, Pip. Today, we are talking with Joel Ah Diamond. Ah is very actively retired. He says the term retired also means to put on new tires and keep on rolling. Currently, he is a full-time multicultural solidarity volunteer. He works part-time in an undercover job and has a gig protectively supervising a father whenever he sees his son. His past careers included being an elementary school teacher, a social worker mostly working with child abuse, and a probation officer mostly working with sex offenders. I was raised by four women. He is enthusiastic about goddess spirituality, feminism, and anti-racism. He has been married to Doris for 54 years, and they live a life with love, 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 and world travel. Hi, Aw. Hey, Pip. So to start with, how about you tell me how you got the name, the middle name Aw? Oh, when I was getting very interested in goddess spirituality and paganism and Wicca. It was 1990. I was trying to find myself a goddessy spiritual name. I, I kept coming up with ones that, that weren't really good. So I asked my son. I guess he was a teenager. And um, he said, well, what feeling do you get when you think of the goddess? And I said, I'm in awe. So that's how we got the name. Oh, and, and, and then since then, I've learned that a lot of people think I walk around in awe of everything. Hmm. So I kept it. Okay. Is it, is it accurate that you walk around in awe of everything? I think so. <laughs> I, I, I think so. If, if, if you um, actually, another lesson I learned from my son when he was four years old, he came up to us in the kitchen and said, you know, if you really look at something, you see how amazing it is. Hmm. So I guess I, I guess if you do, if you think about a chair or anything, if you really think about it, there's some awesome things it can bring to mind. But mainly I'm in awe of nature and the goddess and people. Okay. Well, I know you through uh, Diana's Grove Mystery School. Um, which I've talked about a couple times on this show, which is a definitely a, a I, I think you could describe it as goddess spirituality kind of place. Um, and, and the name Odd did always strike me as, as fitting for you. Like it always did seem to me like you were sort of enamored with life in general. So yeah. tell, tell me about love, love, love. Oh, uh, well. This has to do with when people when people ask my spouse and I how we last uh, be fifty five years married a little longer altogether. I say love, 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 and people think I mean lots of love, which is true. But also, I think of it as um, love of self, love of the other person and love of something like the goddess, some something, something uh, spiritual, and um, that's what love, love, love means to me. And also, uh, my wife Doris, uh, she for a long time was signing emails, love, love, love. I copied her, and she stopped doing it, but I, I, I do that, and. Um, you know, nothing wrong with getting more more love in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a beautiful perspective to have. How did you get on the path of goddess spirituality? Whoa, that's okay. That's good. That's a good question. Um, I think it was around 1990. I had been a NOW member since the 70s. And one day, our chapter had a guest speaker, um, a witch. 
and she uh, presented. And it was um, it was great. Really, really grabbed me. That's that's that was the moment. Then we went exploring after that. Actually, my wife did what she often does. She she sends me <laughs> as a scout. Even for joining now, I joined first, I think, and then um, and then later she uh, she joins, uh, catches up, and uh, soars ahead. Really, <laughs> becomes like a a leader in different things. Um, would use me as a scout at first. It's very funny, really. <laughs> and how did you and Doris meet? You've been together fifty four, going on fifty five years. Oh boy. <laughs> Okay, let's see how to make it short. This you don't have hard. to. We got a lot of time. <laughs> well, this will be a little hard to, uh, to not misunderstand in the beginning because if I said that we met after the computer dating method that they had back in the 60s faded as a fad, waned as a fad, What's going to come to your mind? You're going to think of like current computer dating. This was when computers were filling up a room and they, they were gigantic and they had to have air conditioning and, um, and they, they didn't talk to each other. It was the very you know, beginning days of years of computers. And so some computer scientist would punch some things on a card and stick it into the computer and it would punch out an answer. So if you punched in how much is two and two, it'll punch out four. And uh, the way to program things is way different and primitive back then. So that had gone on in the early 60s and we didn't even know about it. And then that fed waned. And one day I was walking in my in Queens College in Queens, New York City. I was I went to visit my old fraternity brothers. So I had already gotten into graduate school, I think. And Doris was going to school there. But at two different times, we both picked up a brochure that was lying around the student lounge from a psychologist. And he called himself Project Elite. And he said, no computers. Let a trained psychologist match your paragraph that you write about yourself, one paragraph, and one paragraph you write about what you would like to find in a date. And I will match you guys up and you can have, um, well, you can, I can get you more than one match and you could all find each other. And, um, I don't know, it was very reasonable, so probably like $5 or something, uh, maybe less. And um, so we did that. We didn't know each other. And uh, Doris got 20 matches. And I got four. And um, she was the last one I called. And uh, when I, by the time I called her, I, I, was, I was the 20th. I was the last one of 20 <laughs> to call. And she had already been uh, dating um, many of those. And um, there were three that she was dating kind of regular. So I had to like work my way up from those, uh, those three. And I, I did. But uh, in those days, people weren't so safety conscious. Um, like uh, someone would just knock on her door and she'd get in their car and they'd drive somewhere, maybe to a place to have coffee or something. But I stood out for her because I didn't like cheap it out or think tentatively. I just figured, let's have fun. So we had, um, we went to what used to be called the Westbury Music Fair. And uh, it was like a rotating stage theater back in 1966. And um, it was a double bill of um, Ella Fitzgerald and um, Duke Ellington. Wow. We did that after having uh, dinner out. 
And that was fun. And then we did three more things. I think we went to miniature golf. I'm not sure what the two other things were. Usually I can remember four out of five. And uh, so we hit it off. And that's how, that's how we met. That's sweet. You really took her to have a good time. That's the short version. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been together. I mean, that's a lot of years. I've never been married, so I can't even begin to imagine what it's like. But, you know, you've had, I imagine, a lot of adventures on the way. Yeah, we had a lot of adventures. We used the love, love, love method. And there's some more details go into that. Um, we had two crises, yeah. but the methods that we uh, used uh, was stronger than the crisis. I, I could go into that if it's of interest or move on, whatever you wish. Um, how about you tell me about one of them? I'd like to hear about sort of what y'all have been through. Well, I didn't really mean to say what the crisis was, oh. but, but the, uh, but the, the methods. How, okay. But how we, how we overcame, how we overcome, overcome them. Yeah. Well, one is um, in between crises, like like just every now and then we polish up our act of uh, by having some uh, couple counseling. Hmm. Uh, except also another thing we do is um, we stay strong by by doing check-ins with each other. Like we, we go for a walk, and person will just say everything on their mind they want to share uninterrupted and then the other person goes and later we could talk about anything that might be needed to talk about and um and uh so that we have this assumption that we could overcome anything mm. so that uh, i understand that lots of contemporary young couples now the first crisis they have they figure oh they made a mistake goodbye but uh, we know we know better than that for us. That's great. That's great. So I'm going to kind of switch paths on you or subjects on you here. Um, when I was looking through your bio, the um, the part that really I was the most curious about was your past careers. Um, you were an elementary school teacher. You said you were a social worker, mostly working with child abuse and a probation officer, mostly working with sex offenders. I'm really curious, like where you got to the point that you were working with um, child abuse and sex offenders. Well, my principal, when I was a teacher, hmm strongly recommended after 10 years that I go to social work school and become a social worker. He felt that that was really what I was doing as a teacher anyway. Yeah. And um, he had his own reasons to want me to leave. And um, so he paid me to go on sabbatical and, 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 and just go to social work school. And um, so there, I figured I, I know children from teaching 10 years. So I pursued like um, a combination of uh, social change because that's what my uh, social work school was into, Stony Brook, and, um, and, and, and children. And so every youth-centered type job that I had, or youth outreach, work, out, youth outreach worker, job like that is I would see uh, a preponderance of uh, kids that had um, abuse history mm. or current with uh, first with um, uh, teenagers who were abused because uh, back then the child protective services agencies out here anyway weren't taking teenage abuse uh, seriously they felt mm. they could fend for themselves which a big mistake and um, and then I got into uh, and then I found among the abuse uh, among the kids that had abuse that it was a very big uh, instance of uh, child sexual abuse. Mm. 
So I got a job running a um, a program uh, that helped Child Protective Services improve how they were handling that. Mm. Uh, any any age kids, and then when I um, left that years and years later, I um, I figured I would try to get into uh, the probation department's um, sex offender unit because I felt that um, might me might be more productive to uh, contain those guys either by uh, um, imprisonment or by rehabilitation uh, compared to mopping up the uh, pieces of the mess that they leave behind them. Um, might be more efficient. So that I think that's my answer to your question. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, I have a few follow-up questions. So we'll kind of go back a little bit. Um, when you said that the principal where you were working said that, uh, or felt that you were really doing social work as a teacher, I'm curious what that means. Well... I really wasn't that good at teaching reading. Hmm. I was good at, um, I was really good at teaching um, math because I, I did uh, everything uh, individualized or in tiny little groups like two and uh, especially for math. And, um, but, um, I don't know. I, I figured the kids need to be happy in order to learn good and they need to be respected. Yeah. And um, so we did things that were unusual for uh, schools back, back then. Like, I don't know. You're on the young side. I don't know what schools did then, but like if kids had to walk in the halls, they go from their main classroom to gym or something, they had to line up in size place, two different lines, one by boy and one by girl, and walk in the hall, and the teacher stops every 20 feet to get everybody lined up right and quiet and stuff. And she's like, I just uh, did a needs assessment survey like social workers do informally. She's talking with the kids, and they didn't like that. And they... Uh, agreed very much to a plan that we came up with of to uh, to walk like uh, human beings, like goats, not herded goats. Yeah. And then they would walk in the hall to the, uh, the next place in groups of three or five the most. And um, they just would promise not to make trouble and noise and not, not peer, peer through their friends' uh, classroom doorways and stuff. And, so uh, that, that worked very well. Nobody ever got in any trouble, but the um, principals told me I have to stop that because the other teachers are complaining that their kids want to do it. <laughs> so that was one aspect of being perceived as a social worker because um, you know social work wasn't originally um, therapy. Mm. It's like a recent uh, add-on, and it's... Um, was really into social change and social justice was the original purpose of social work. But um, and also, you know, helping people with their problems is another uh, uh, part of social work. So um, I used to uh, visit the kids and their parents at their homes and get to know them. And he thought that was very unusual. I mean, the most, uh, I guess, the, usual thing to do would be a teacher to call a parent on the phone. And usually when there was mischief, some teachers uh, back then, even that, even back then would call uh, before there's mischief, trying to make a, a bond and stuff and be positive, but um, that would just be one phone call. So um, another reason I think he felt I was social worky was because when he would uh, break the laws that were just being passed in the 70s, 
uh, equal educational opportunity for girls and uh, some uh, racial equality laws back then, I, I would point it out to him and it would really disturb him. And um, I think it was that kind of combination. In fairness to him, he, even though he really hated me, he did. <laughs> <laughs> He uh, did me. He did me uh, a very uh, good service uh, in um, recommending I go to social work school and getting me the sabbatical, you know, money that helped me get started. And also, he did me a great service of um, writing a letter to my draft board that he needs um, men in elementary school, and uh, it worked. I, so I didn't. Uh, I didn't have to go into the war. Okay. And to his credit, even though he really hated me, he he still was a principled principal. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I'm glad that he was still a force for good in your life. Um, yeah, somehow, even though he hated me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so when you were helping uh, Child Protective Services, you said improve how they were handling abuse. I'm just curious what that means as far as like what, do you see as best practices? Well, back back then, I could speak to back then. Okay, sure. Um, which would be the 70s and 80s. Um, well, child sexual abuse cases tend to be very involved in that there's lots of agencies get involved. Mm. Um, not just job protective services, but there's uh, usually uh, law enforcement, uh, particularly probation or parole. There's uh, very often uh, temporary foster care or permanent foster care. There's um, therapy agencies, sometimes the individual therapist is um, health agencies very, very often involved. And um, and some 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 families would have like uh, five or even uh, eight or ten uh, agencies involved and and uh, the coordination or miscoordination, non-coordination uh, turned out to would be um, disempowering to the parent who's trying to help the kid or kids and family uh, survive, uh, um, you know, and repair their emotional damages and pain and stuff, and um, and stay safe. So a lot of times they were still be like court-ordered visitation and stuff. And um, but that's another agency. Sometimes there were supervised visitation agencies. Yeah. And um, so, so it would be like overwhelming and disempowering uh, to the mom. And a lot of times CPS would come by the house during CPS working hours, daytime. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those families where the father was still there. He wouldn't be there in the daytime. He's out working. So who do they see? Or if the dad isn't there anymore, who do they see is the mom trying to pick up the pieces. And they would be like, uh, they couldn't help it. If they saw something that they felt, oh, this parent isn't doing a good job now, they'd start investigating her. Mm. More so than supporting. And uh, it was hard, hard for them uh, not to do that. And um, and they did, they did have, oh, there's another agency uh, uh, would be involved in something called preventive services. And um, they did use that sometimes. And um, But also, all these agencies would just like be getting each other's way. They, they, would, they would sometimes have uh, slightly, um, uh, what do you call it, different goals even conflicting goals sometimes. And, um, and so when we would meet together, we would have a meeting. This was in the, in the um, 
in the 70s, this was 70s and 80s. This was like brand new. Mom, if she could handle it, would chair the meeting. Or, or me or one of my workers would chair the meeting and, and put empowering mom. The line workers of all these agencies would be there once a month. Usually interagency coordination is like executives or someone who just specializes in interagency coordination would come and they will talk to each other about hundreds of cases, not one at a time, no. a whole hour or more at a time for one case. And so that the agencies found it was good for them too, because they could avoid the situation where the client, which is usually mom, sometimes if our kids can handle it and they and she wanted, um, even the kids would be there sometimes. But, but they couldn't say different things to different agencies and the agencies like that. And this is a thing that goes on. And, um, but the main thing was the agencies are doing their job in front of each other and a coordination service like me and in front of the client. They're making decisions and plans for what to do for the next month in front of each other and reviewing how they did from their last plan that they committed to. So they were all working at their best, not to be embarrassed. But then, they start to catch on that they're rolling this together. And it's not out of embarrassment that they do good. They want to do good. Yeah. And they see, here's a case where we could really make progress. Instead of being hampered by all the obstacles, we could really make progress. And, and a, um, a particular line worker could go to his boss or her boss and say, Sam, I really need you to give me leeway to do something we don't usually do. I want to go back to the team meeting and say, I have your blessing to do something uh, different because there's three agencies that really need that. If we do that, it's going to help the mom a lot. And the boss has to say yes, because in the past, he got a benefit of somebody's boss saying yes. Yeah. So it just turns things to we're all in this together. I'm with, uh, and, and to whatever extent mom can handle it, mom, mom in charge, or at least she's there monitoring what's going on. And, and um, well, let me see. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I really had no idea there was, I guess, so many agencies involved, and I could see why there would be a lot of mess and obstacles, as you say, to kind of getting the job done, which is to keep the kids safe. Um, and so it makes sense to bring more communication and teamwork into the process. Well, and it was something else too, I forgot that was probably equally important is um, resources. So in those days, there wasn't so many um, therapists that really know how to handle child sexual abuse well. Hmm. And um, but, uh, but there were, but then uh, most of them were private and uh, sometimes didn't take insurance or mm. the clients didn't qualify for insurance or like a three-year-old uh, barely speak, only spoke um, a different language in English or the family couldn't travel to where therapy is available. So I would find resources to match up these situations. And I, I had to find a therapist that would be more skilled and could do it for free very often. And also agree to come to monthly meetings. And some of those meetings they could get billed for with the right insurance company and some not. I even got some therapists to travel to the um, client's uh, town. Hmm. And I, then I find some, uh, some building that was available for for free to, to use. And um, so this kind of resource development and therapy matching was uh, of a great uh, importance, really. Yeah, I could see why that would be a huge deal. Yeah, there was amazing amount of therapists out there that uh, felt 
their hearts go out to uh, to these kind of kids and their, and their, and sometimes the and their families and at least the the mothers and um, similar to how a lot of people uh, open up and extend themselves to kids with cancer. It's like yeah. easy in a way to get um, people interested in, in helping, but they had to be, they had to know what they were doing too. And I, so I was good at that, even though I'm not a good, I don't think I'm good at, uh, at therapy actually. <laughs> <laughs> Crisis intervention, I used to be really good at. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's hugely important. So you mentioned earlier that um, as far as the people who are committing these crimes, you know, that at some point there's a decision about rehabilitation versus imprisonment. Um, I'm curious under what circumstances or conditions you believe that, sorry, rehabilitation is possible. It's possible if the, they're matched with the right uh, therapy method and that nobody blocks it saying they don't want to spend money on, 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 on sex offender monsters. Mm. Um, the, uh, the high recidivism rates that are quoted, which are very, the ones that are quoted are very high, the 90s, high 90s, is based upon a terrible uh, method. It's based upon um, when the uh, sex offender goes to any therapist whatsoever, and, when, and mostly they would be choosing their own uh, uh, under that statistical finding. So they have the uh, predictable, uncanny ability to choose therapists that don't know what they're doing or they can manipulate. But if they're, if they're given the right uh, therapy, which is a combination of uh, group therapy uh, and a law enforcement model of it, um, they have, um, instead of 95%, um, 12%. Whoa. And uh, now uh, Suffolk County, uh, I, don't, I, wasn't, uh, I haven't been working for the Suffolk County Probation Department since 2002. But back then, um, they had a good state-of-the-art um, method. Uh, Colorado did, I think Vermont did. And I think it was Saskatchewan or, or Alberta, one of those Western provinces in Canada. And they had uh, great, great, great stats. And um, the, it's a, a method like to prevent uh, relapse and to think of it uh, similarly to 12 steps hmm. in some ways. But um, the law enforcement piece of it is important so that like um, there would be like a probation officer who is or is not also a therapist even if not and a therapist uh, in, in, in the uh, sessions and um, last I left off they were using um, polygraphs in an interesting way not to uh, find out if uh, the person was innocent or guilty, that's already been established um, by court. But uh, if they're being honest about what they're reporting about how they're doing in their life, like uh, did you, uh, and they know there's gonna be a polygraph or they might get a random, that might be their turn for it or something, but, but uh, if you say, well, did uh, those of you that uh, have to go to, um, your 12-step programs, did, did, did you go? Or did you get a sponsor? What happened? And so they don't want to get caught lying. Even one lie could get them uh, back in court for, for not cooperating with probation. Yeah. But to answer your question from another angle, I found that a whole bunch of those people are truly remorseful, overwhelmed by combination of bad decisions and urges that they have. And some of them want to find out how they got those urges and how never to do it again, never hurt a kid again, and we could do anything to make sure they never hurt a kid again. And um, so those people we would uh, 
just support uh, best we best we could. But people where I could see signs that they were just doing their best to get over and get by and get through. Um, well, then I would have to try to catch them, um, breaking probation's rules or the court's um, conditions of probation, or uh, especially if it was involving contact with with kids. So I would surveil them um, uh, at work and in the community and their homes, and um, and then um, and catch them. Which was interesting because I was one of the few um, probation officers that declined to carry a weapon. Hmm. So I was, in a way, at more risk, hiding behind a dumpster looking in somebody's uh, house to see if he's violating the judge's order about uh, staying away from his sister. And... Um, and even then, I wouldn't be able to make the arrest right then because um, people who don't carry weapons, probation officers don't carry weapons, have to get two probation officers who are carrying weapons to assist in the arrest. So, so lots of ins and outs and stuff. It was That was my hardest job of all my uh, careers. Yeah, I could see why it would be. Um, so much of what you said is really interesting. Um, we sort of, I feel like so many people think of rehabilitation for these people as impossible. Um, it, as you said, you know, quoting the statistics, I mean, but 95% to 12%, I mean, that's, that's pretty mind blowing. Um, and I don't think that most people are aware that you know, there are successful strategies, as you said, for people who are actually remorseful and interested in changing and growing and stuff. Um, and there's a word that you used a little bit back, um, the word monster, you know, that people are hesitant to allow therapy for offenders, um, you know, because they just see them as, you know, irredeemable monsters. And I've always thought that that's sort of really interesting, but really sad, you know, just in the sense that like, it doesn't help anybody to like use that word, you know, to um, assume that the people are completely irredeemable. Um, last question on this topic, if you could change the way our culture treats sexual violence, what would it be? Well, can I back up a little bit? Totally. Um, I also worked with domestic violence for a while as a probation officer. Okay. And I found those guys just stayed locked into the feeling that, that they were provoked mm -hmm. by a bad woman. And they couldn't let go of it. And I, I think I didn't, I haven't met any, any program or that, that really is successful with them. And um, hmm. I think it's harder to change them. On the other hand, I have a friend in Knoxville, Tennessee, who's the head of a, um, a program that, um, that works with domestic violence offenders, and um, I uh, I attend I attend it every now and then, um, and I'm extremely impressed. Uh, just there's not like longevity statistics available yet. Yeah. So I hope I'm wrong. I might be wrong, but it should be good. Um, so these things in mind. <laughs> How, how would I like to see society respond to sexual violence? Yeah. Or view it, you know, yeah. Uh, all right. 
they could do it at a wishful thinking level? Yeah, totally. Well, we need to change the whole patriarchal paradigm and mm. and 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 not wait for someone else's lifetime. I think we should do it by tomorrow morning. Mm. It's um it's drastically needed. There there was a um radical feminist lesbian writer. I think she described herself that way. Maybe she had the words in different order. Um Johnson, something Johnson. And um she felt that the reason this society is always bludgeoning people, especially women and so-called minorities, um, is because we're really close to breaking through. Mm. And that uh, all it takes is uh, the 100 monkeys idea or the critical mass idea. And we could... Uh, revolutionize society. The, the patriarchal style of civilization has only been about, you know, a blip in the history of uh, humankind. I think if, I don't know, if you go back 20,000 years, I think it's safe to say there was no patriarchy except maybe in one, one part of the planet, maybe. Yeah. And um, uh, I think that's the that's the that's the main the main thing is 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 is, is to change it. This style of civilization is new mm. and 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 bad. And I, I blame it for all the bad things, uh, such as uh, capitalism. Um, there's a great book. Um, let's see, it's I think it's called. Oh God, something and the witch. Oh. Mm. It's about the history of, of um, patriarchy and ca capitalism, how, how patriarchy uh, developed capitalism, what, what, starting way back in the Middle Ages. And um, it's really shows stuff. Mm. And um, so I, 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 that's what I, I long for is that we could organize enough that we could, um, we could make, 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 make the change. Oh, there's something that supports that. You know, how a lot of, um, status quo people cite nature, um, uh, inaccurately, but they say like, it's, it's, it's natural. In, in, in nature for uh, men, for the males, the you know, male species of animals to uh, be dominant. Mm. And um, well, in the uh, world of apes, there's only one species that, that, that rapes, which is some very few um, adolescent or orangutans have been known do that but otherwise nobody nobody gorillas to all all of them they don't they don't do it and um people uh measured um uh, let's see was it chimpanzees or um baboons or where they they they, they uh, looked into who is in charge of the community i don't know if you call it you don't call it herds. I don't know what you call, it, but they, they, um, and they found that that um, it varied so much that it wasn't a set pattern of gender. But when there was, it would be temporary, and over generations, every now and then, there was like equivalent of a revolution, and the other gender would take over. Hmm. But if there was, but if there was a preponderance to either gender. I'm just talking male, female. Mm -hmm. um, it was female. At any one moment, if they measured who's the head of uh, all the different herds of baboons and chimpanzees, et cetera, they would be more female. But, but that revolution could change it for many generations. So to me, that's very hopeful.
that's the nature model that I get inspired by. Let's copy their revolutionary nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's a good answer to you. Well, I think overthrowing patriarchy sounds like a very effective solution to the problems we're describing. Uh, you know, enacting it is difficulty uh, is difficult, but I, as I said, you could, you totally had the freedom to think on a wishful thinking level. Um, and I'm really curious, you know, you've seen a lot of challenging, difficult, hard things. Like how do you stay hopeful about overthrowing patriarchy or how do you live in a place of awe? Okay. Well, you ask good questions. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, it goes back to my love, love, love stuff. Hmm. Um, I guess my mother taught me how to see the good in people. Hmm. And um, so I, in between all the bad stuff that happened all the time, I, I, I look for the good. I look to find some good things to do for myself and with my friends to have some joy. And um, that helps me uh, keep going. But having a sense of community where we're all in this together, like this, uh, the Multicultural Solidarity Organization, it, it's a very hopeful, positive place. I volunteer as one of the co-presidents and we, um, we, we support each other when, when some terrible thing happens to one um, uh, culture group. So uh, we all support, support that person. And we go to each other's um, protests and stuff. And, um, and actually just meeting with each other on a regular basis where we're all different cultures, that that helps a lot. Uh, no, we're not alone, yeah. staying hopeful. We're actually trying to interrupt this thing we learned about where 75% of white people don't have a single non-white friend. What? <laughs> wow, yeah. that's yeah. a big number. That was in a 2013 study. So, um, we uh, we try to interrupt that. We're trying to model the um, what's it called the uh, Martin Luther King's um, beloved community. He called it. But, you know, where everybody is friends, cross culturally, gets along, and uh, so that, I think that helps a lot. And um, oh, you know, there's something that helps me personally that I, I really initially don't like. It sounds strange. Yeah. My wife likes to take me away from it all. She she actually invented our multicultural solidarity initiative, yeah. but she she like would make sure that we go out with each other, have a long time at home and everything, and and uh, takes me traveling the world. And I every time she books up a a trip, I don't want to go. <laughs> My initial thing is like, I got deadlines to meet. I'm going to come back and it's going to be worse. Um, and then like all the way to the airport and, and at the airport, I'm, I'm on a computer trying to meet deadlines and stuff. And so I, I don't want to go. I don't want to go on a trip. But then when we get there, I realize it. That, wow, this is great. Chris <laughs> was a genius. I need to get away. So does she. And I'm in another country. It's beautiful. Every country is beautiful. And I meet uh, uh, people. And I uh, try to get to know as many people as we can and uh, broaden our horizons. And it's, uh, it's like beautiful. Uh, I'm Facebook friends with people all over the world, like Mongolia <laughs> and Namibia. <laughs> And uh, as a matter of fact, the woman from Namibia is going to come and stay with us for a while in December. So, so I think I, I try to balance balance it. Um, 
but I do admit that I have a big sadness, like lots of people, and, and worry about the world and stuff. Sure. I don't get depressed, though. I know a lot of people I get actual depression. I, I don't get actually depressed. Hmm. But I could sometimes temporarily burn out. That's happened. Hmm. So just now you kind of talked about uh, being a multicultural solidarity volunteer. Um, another thing in your bio that you mentioned is that you're an under cover you have an undercover job are you allowed to talk about that at all <laughs> if i don't say much about it it's like it's kind of like a secret shopper okay and um i could uh, catch people uh, being good or or not um yeah but it's very exciting because I, I feel like i'm a spy <laughs> i don't have a gun or anything <laughs> But um, it's, it's, it's exciting for an old man to, <laughs> to be undercover. <laughs> well, one of the things that I really admire about you is just, um, I mean, you've had a wide variety of life experiences. You had this beautiful, positive attitude that I love. Um, final question, are there any words of wisdom that you'd like to impart to us or, or any, you know, any insights into how you've had such a varied and interesting life? That was kind of two questions mushed up into one, but you can answer one or both or neither, whatever. <laughs> you see, now to give an answer to the general world, hmm. I think is hard and possibly inaccurate. Like hmm. if I know, knew to whom I was speaking, even if it's a category, like, if, suppose I was speaking to men, all the men of the world. <laughs> I would say, you know, respect women and girls and, and, and uh, start reading and exploring and find out why, why you're afraid. And, um, and, and, and I would say that to them. Uh, if I talk to just general, general, the whole, all seven, <laughs> was it seven or eight billion people? I'd say, um, don't give up because we're, we're all in this together. Hmm. I, like I don't that. know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think that's good. I like it. Anything else you'd like to talk about before we end the call? I don't know if you ever if you ever uh, do this in your podcast, but like hmm. I would like to talk about you because I remember being so in awe, actually, huh. of all the things that you've done with your life and the challenges you overcame and all your amazing different kinds of creativities. It's like I'd like to. That's what I'd like to talk about. Okay. Well, we have, a, we, we have a little flexibility with our times. We can talk about me for a little bit. <laughs> Anything in particular? Well, have you ever talked about yourself in any of the podcasts? Not really. Every now and then I'll, I'll touch on something that somehow relates to a topic that we're discussing about the other person. I remember um, when you were a single mom and, and you, and you uh, had all kinds of challenges economic and elsewise sure how you um navigated that i remember being thrilled about that and and and, and all of a sudden you became a film director a very creative one it's like whoa <laughs> <laughs> well being a filmmaker had been a dream of mine from the time i was like 17 um yeah and then i went to film school in 2015 um, and I enjoyed it, um, but not as much as I thought I would, uh, for different reasons. Um, you know, like I think to some extent I fell in love with the idea of filmmaking, like, uh, sort of, you know, same reason that 
some of the men that I've fallen in love with, you know, I've fallen in love with their potential, (laughs) you know, like I could see how film could potentially, you know, create a spiritual mass awakening, you know, of people sort of, you know, uh, uh, kind of encouraging people to, you know, sort of love each other more, you know, um, you know, build a better world, that kind of thing. Um, I was really in love with, you know, what I saw the potential of that kind of reach to be. Um, and I, I wasn't able to go to film school because of financial aid reasons as an undergrad. So I was an art major and then I worked like for a little while at PBS um, and just had like a lot of freelance jobs over the years. Um, but then, yeah, in 2015, I went to film school and found that I didn't love it as much as I wanted to. Um, and it didn't help that, like, I was kind of surrounded by 20-year-olds when I was, like, 36, you know, <laughs> like, I was old enough to be their mom, and so I didn't really find my group, you know, and, and then when I graduated, I wasn't able to find work that was... Uh, hours that I could do because I am still a single mom and film school or, you know, film jobs are all like 12 hour days. Um, and that just really wasn't tenable. So I ended up going to seminary. So I don't know if you knew that about me, but I'm in seminary now to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. Oh, I, I'm in a Unitarian fellowship myself. Okay. Yeah, I, I really enjoy Unitarian Universalism. And I, I feel actually more at home here than I did in film school. Um, like I, you know, the conversations I'm having with my peers are all really interesting, you know, like even all those years that I wanted to be a filmmaker, like I only owned like four or five film books, but like, I'd always buy spirituality books, you know, like spirituality was always more core to who I was. And I was always interested in filmmaking for what I saw as its spiritual potential, you know? So actually I, I feel like ministry actually feels more like calling to me than uh than i thought that filmmaking was wow (laughs) you know my unitarian universalist fellowship is uh just now changing um ministers we're we're gonna start with uh, two years of an interim person and then we're gonna Mm -hmm. choose a permanent one I wonder if you could get on our list. That would be something. <laughs> well, I don't think I'll be graduating soon enough to be able to um, to like apply there as an interim minister. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm going for parish ministry. Like I sort of think that, I mean, I like attending church, but, um, and having leadership roles in church, but I'm really feeling more like drawn to either chaplaincy or like community ministries, like working in a nonprofit or that kind of thing. Nice. Um, but the interim model that you, you mentioned is a really good practice for congregations to do because it's sort of like a palate cleansing. Like it's kind of a chance to like let go of any patterns you had with the last minister, sort of let go of the way that they always did things and like kind of get your mind fresh for the next person that's going to come along. I'll try, but I really love, love our patterns that we've had. They're really very social justice, Hmm. transforming patriarchy, uh, uh, pagan leaning, patterns I, I love it very much well and you can you know I mean I, I'm sure that the interim will guide you um through the process of deciding what's important to you still and what you can let go of you know um but social justice and pagany like my uh cur- you know my home congregation is is very interested in those things as well and like I've seen us go through ministerial changes where we held on to those things but you know we might change the order of service we might change like how the board is governed or you know things like that like there's a lot of things that go into how a church is built that you don't necessarily think about that that can change you know and it yeah 
Well, it's, it's very, I'm very delighted to learn learn about. It. I didn't know about that about you in uh, seminary. Mm, yeah. Thanks. Well, it has been a delight to talk to you all. I'm delighted that you were delighted. I'm very happy about it. Thanks for inviting me a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. Okay, bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please join us again another day on Pip Talk. <laughs>